Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be talking with Robert Hellyer about his book, Green with Milk and Sugar, When Japan Filled America's Teacups, out from Columbia University Press in 2021. Green with Milk and Sugar is a tale of American and Japanese teaways, skillfully weaving together stories of Midwesterners drinking green tea, the recent and complex origins of the Japanese love of now ubiquitous sencha, Ceylon tea merchants exploiting American racism, Chinese tea production expertise, and the author's own family history in the Japan-America tea trade, going back to the 19th century. Transnational histories and commodity histories are notoriously delicate dances, but Hellier has produced a very readable and eye-opening look at the modern history and culture of tea. Green with Milk and Sugar will be of interest to a diverse group of historians, scholars of North America, East Asia, commerce and trade, economics, food, etc., but also to a general audience who will be pulled in by the author's personal connections, as well as the delightfully jargon-free narrative. Okay, so uh, Dr. Hellyer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, So I wanted to start out with the question that we ask everybody, which is, how did you become interested in the project that became Green Green with Milk and Sugar? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, And please call me Robert. And there are two major things that brought me to be interested in this project. Uh, First of all, was my my family. Um, My ancestors uh, went to Japan on my father's side in the 1850s and became involved in exporting tea to the United States. So hearing about this growing up, particularly from my paternal grandmother, uh, led me to want to study this in more detail. And second was that as a historian, I thought there was a fabulous story here, um, particularly about the idea of of Americans and Americans in the Midwest uh, drinking Japanese green tea. So I really wanted to dig deeper about that and learn about that. So those are the two big motivations for me to write this book. Great. And that actually transitions us really nicely into uh, the two things that I wanted to ask you about in the introduction, right? So just for our audience, um, your book is this uh, historical look at American tea consumption, tea ways, as you put it, Um, and the uh, domestic and international context of tea way development in the United States. Um, And those two things which you mentioned immediately piqued my interest. Uh, so the first is uh, your argument that uh, Americans who now drink black teas were once so keen to have their teas green that they willingly bought them with additives that enhanced a tea's green color. And I'm quoting from you here. But uh, And then you, you continue, Japanese today overwhelmingly drink green teas that, when infused, produce a rich green brew. Yet in the past, a good portion of Japanese consumed green teas that yielded a brown nectar when brewed. So this sort of reversal uh, in tea uh, brewing and culture and so on and so forth was really sort of fascinating to me. And as somebody who was interested in food history as well, I was also a little embarrassed that I didn't know this. 
Um, and then the second thing is, is uh, the thing that you mentioned first, which is your own family's intimate connection to this history. Um, so I wonder if you could start out by telling us a little more about both of these things, the surprising trajectory of American tea drinking on the one hand, um, and the role that your family played in that history. And more specifically, um, if you could talk about how Americans, especially in the Midwest, started out uh, the 19th century with a preference for green tea, often consumed uh, hot with milk and sugar, which is how we get the title of the book. Um, if that's the case, then when and why did that change in sort of the broadest strokes? Um, and how does your family uh, history uh, fill in, fit into that story? How, is, how are the two integrated? Well, thank you for all the questions. Uh, I'll start first by explaining a little bit about my family background. As I mentioned, uh, dated back to the 1850s, and a man named William Alt, uh, who was my great uncle uh, five generations back, at the age of 13, he left Britain seeking to help his family financially. And he worked on the crew of a merchant ship that traded around the world, including uh, taking tea from Shanghai to Britain. And in 1858, he accepted a job in Shanghai and the following year went to Nagasaki to seek more opportunity. Um, he founded in Nagasaki what we might call today an import-export firm and quickly developed tea exports. And what was very interesting to me among many things was how that Alt made a decision, uh, like other British merchants in Nagasaki at the time, to sell teas, Japanese teas, to the United States, to the U.S. market. And Alt uh, retired around his 30th birthday, having made his fortune, uh, returned to England. And my great-great-grandfather, Frederick Hellyer, took over the company and began to focus exclusively on tea exports. And because um, increasingly as the 19th century went on, that the Midwest was the center of the U.S. tea market, Frederick moved his family to Chicago in 1888. So in a lot of ways, uh, on my father's side of the family, um, became Americans because of green tea's popularity in the United States. So that's a bit of a background on my family. Um, the other point that you made that's uh, surprising uh, about Americans drinking tea and drinking green tea, I was also certainly surprised when I found out about this uh, initially. Um, but I think one thing that it, it leads to is that there is first, we are surprised, I guess we being a lot of times uh, what's been accepted both in scholarship and in popular discourse, that there could be a distinct American culture. It's often dismissed, as, excuse me, an American tea culture is often dismissed. Um, and thankfully, we're moving away from an idea that was developed, um, well, certainly in the 19th century, that Americans had patriotically given up tea and embraced coffee with the Boston Tea Party in 1773. And also in a lot of scholarship on tea, there's a sense that even after independence, those Americans that are drinking tea are Anglophiles uh, who have a connection to Britain. And the British tea culture is therefore influencing what's happening in the United States. But one of the things that I hope can be a takeaway from the book is how important, first of all, the direct link that the United States had with China and how that led to a distinct tea culture or tea ways, as I like to call it, in the United States, particularly from 1800, when U.S. ships started to bring more green tea 
um, and was able to sell it in the United States at a higher price than black teas that leads then to the start of the U.S. preference for green tea. Also, we don't have a distinct American practice of tea drinking. Uh, Americans had tea parties that were modeled on the British style, um, but there was no ritual about how to drink it. So therefore, one of the really striking aspects, and of course, that is the title of the book, was how many Americans would decide with their green tea that they wanted to drink it hot with milk and sugar. So perhaps uh, you, you wanted me to go in, I, I, those are two directions. Would you like me then to talk now more about then the, the switch? Uh, please, that would American be great. Yes, thank you. Okay, sure. Well, a, a background about that was that we have um, from the 1850s is a real growth of American tea consumption. Um, Americans are drinking a lot more. Uh, at that point, the teas are all from China. Um, but there is then a real divergence from, from first of all, from the, the, the 1860s, um, when we have then the change, an important change in the world tea market. Okay, so the second half of the 19th century, um, you really show that this was revolutionary for American tea. Um, so first, Americans began drinking a lot more tea. Uh, and th that was both oolongs and more of the sort of English breakfast teas that a lot of people think of these days when we think of black tea. Um, and you relate this to uh, the history uh, uh, between the U.S., uh, Japan, uh, the British Empire, and China at the time. And while China was still the monopoly producer of tea, that situation was changing in the 1860s. Um, so both the U.S. and Japan are engaged in civil wars at the time in the 1860s. But even so, America began to welcome Japanese green tea, which had some really profound effects for both countries. So can you tell us about the changes in the world of tea uh, that begin really in the middle of the 19th century and into, into the 1860s? Um, and also the place of uh, domestic Japanese brokers, such as Oura Kei, um, and also William Alt, uh, your uh, ancestor who you mentioned, um, and the emergence and the innovations. Uh, I was actually I was fascinated by the mail order brand marketing, for example, uh, of the great American tea company at this time. Well, thank you very much for those questions. We can make an important change starting just around 1860. Um, and that comes first with Japan being the, the, the first country to challenge China's long-held monopoly on the world tea market. Uh, this being the, the only country that is supplying tea to the outside world, particularly the Western world, was China up to this point. So Japan exporting for this time is, is very significant. And that's followed from the 1870s by dramatic increases in production, first in India and Ceylon. Uh, the fact that tea had not been produced in those areas up to this point. And there's wonderful stories, books written uh, about how the British were able to develop that production and also then change the British market that in 1860 was predominantly uh, Britain's consuming Chinese tea. 15 years later, that is changed to Indian and the later Ceylon tea. So that's the background of what's changing so dramatically in the world tea market. And so when Japan is entering it, it's also entering the United States that we see from the 1860s is involved in a lot of market innovations. 
Um, as you mentioned, one of the things was the great American Tea Company that had, number one, developing mail order sales. Um, and the idea that a consumer could be buying direct from the importer. This was an exaggeration in a lot of ways of what Great America was doing, but nonetheless, it was a very, very effective marketing scheme. And also, one of the intriguing things is that Great American and other American tea companies based in New York at this time in the 1860s coin the phrase Japan tea, which becomes then the brand name for Japanese tea until really the 1940s. So also what's happening in some of the points that you mentioned is later on in the 19th century that there's a really dramatic regionalization of tea consumption. Uh, we have other innovations that are happening. Uh, tea producers in New York are also inventing um, the term English breakfast tea. Uh, it was a way to dress up, if you will, a lower grade of Chinese black tea. Um, and this is stuck. And of course, we can buy English breakfast tea uh, at, at many stores around the world, I think. Um, but it is a, a decidedly an American invention. And also with the regionalization, uh, oolong tea is consumed in New York. Um, and more of the first black teas that are coming in from India and Ceylon are consumed on the eastern seaboard. So to come back to your question then about Japan, um, in the 1860s, of course, we're seeing the path toward the Meiji Restoration. The fact that in 1859, Japan had opened three ports to Western-style free trade. And tea uh, being the second largest export of Japan throughout most of the Meiji period uh, after silk, uh, offers tremendous opportunities for uh, people, as you mentioned, Orake, who is a amazing figure uh, as being a successful businesswoman uh, in Nagasaki in the 1860s and 1870s, who served as a broker of selling tea um, to Western export firms. And so she is connecting to people like William Alt that I mentioned, is who is coming to Nagasaki uh, to sell his, um, uh, sorry, to, as I mentioned, to set up his, his firm. So there's all kinds of really intriguing uh, international connections that are developing here in the 1860s. Uh, and as you say here, that shows us how much then tea and the tea market overall is changing in that period. Yes. And the other thing that uh, you really get into beyond this sort of history of tea as a commodity and these uh, sort of uh, economic uh, connections that are being made um, and the sort of internal economics of you know, building new markets and creating new products um, is this idea of uh, the interplay of American and Japanese tea ways uh, and this particularly the sort of factors uh, as such as the American shift to black teas in the 1920s which uh, make sencha, the green tea, uh, the most widely consumed in Japan, drunk from morning until night. Um, and so we have green tea, uh, both from China and Japan, as a sort of completely mundane, ordinary part of American life um, throughout these latter years of the 19th century and into the 20th. 
Um, and it seems to me you're suggesting that changes then in American tea consumption feed back in the 20th century profoundly to Japanese tea drinking. So the, this, there's this interplay of tea ways. Sure, yes. Um, and maybe to explain what happens in Japan in the 1920s, I should add a little bit more background in the late 19th, early 20th century in the United States. And as I mentioned, that the Midwest becomes, as I call it, green tea country. Um, and this really emerges from the 1880s. And I think what is going on here is, first of all, that Midwesterners, here's a place that is growing tremendously, uh, new cities emerging. And as a way to show the sophistication of Midwesterners, they appropriate what has been the established American tea way since 1800, and that's consuming green tea. And so green tea uh, becomes popular, I think, because of this. It's also the fact that Midwesterners, like other Americans, are really fascinated and focused on the tea as it looks at the store when they purchase it. So having a tea that is green uh, as it's and a color that you can see when, when you put it in the bag, when the grocer puts it in the bag for you, was very, very important. And so we're seeing in the Midwest at this time that green tea is actually being democratized, as I call it. Um, a wider swath of consumption, um, people in cities in the Midwest, but also Midwestern farmers that are consuming a lot more tea. So the long and short of it, there's increasing imports uh, into the United States in the late 19th and then into the early 20th century. Um, what happens then in the late 19th century, actually from the 1890s, is that Indian Ceylon uh, producers who'd been very, very successful in capturing the British and other, uh, um, I just say British imperial markets, turn their focus onto the United States. And they're hoping then to sell their black teas in the United States. And what they develop is a very coordinated advertisement campaign, advertising campaign, a, a, a negative campaign, where they put an idea of where green tea, and this is both Japanese and Chinese green teas, as being dangerous, dirty, and fraudulent. And many times are using a uh, and many of their advertisements are using um, images uh, that are racist, uh, that show then a, a Japanese or Chinese coolie. And the implication is that this dirty coolie who is pr pr uh, processing the tea, oftentimes without any kind of, of, of well, let's just say limited clothing, um, that their sweat is getting into the teas and changing the flavor. So what this negative campaign does is it plants the seed then for uh, many Americans to begin to question green tea. Um, and this change that we see in the United States um, to, as you mentioned, asked earlier um, about when do Americans start to embrace black teas um, is starting actually in the 1920s. It probably could have started in World War I. Um, but because of disruptions from the war, uh, the teas that were being produced in India and Ceylon uh, were, in, were, were not being exported to Britain, other colonial markets. So therefore, uh, Japan had a real opportunity 
and was selling a tremendous amount uh, of teas around the world. So as I hope I'm bringing together all these points of, you know, one thing that's going on in the United States, another thing that's going on in Japan, this convergence that it happens in the 1920s, that here is Japan producing a, a record amounts. Uh, 1917 is really one of the record years of Japanese production. But in the 1920s, the convergence of in the United States, where many Americans start to question uh, green teas, start to see more advertisements for black teas, and therefore turn to buying black teas. What this leads to then is a glut of tea in Japan, a glut of the sencha, of which Japanese had been exporting and making very handsome profits in this export. Um, but the Japanese producers are left with the question of what to do, what to do with all this glut of tea. So here we have for the first time in uh, a lot of ways since since the start of this export trade and this growth of, of this, this uh, production is that Japanese producers are focused on selling in the domestic market. Um, and what they want to do is to market uh, sencha and be able to sell it to Japanese consumers. So what they develop is, first of all, a pretty significant advertising campaigns, and then also start to present Japanese green tea, particularly sencha, as being healthy and being high in vitamin C. So this is the important change that is happening in starting in the 1920s and really extending to today. Um, so the 1920s, I keep bringing it up, is the really the pivotal turning point in this story because of what first happens of the changes in the United States that lead, therefore, to changes in Japan. Yeah, and I, I found this very interesting because it's coming, uh, you know, it's it's coming along with the uh, first major waves of anti-Asian racism, specifically Chinese and then Japanese um, in the U.S. at the beginning of the 20th century. And that's sort of also accelerating at the same time that we're seeing this negative advertising by the promoters of uh, Ceylon and other black teas. Um, and, and so this element of, of racism, um, and as you mentioned, the sort of image of the dirty coolie sweating all over your tea, sort of uh, you know, that sort of pernicious um, image manipulation goes along with the really interesting to me story of a gentleman named Vincent Tessera, who is one of the marketers of the Ceylon teas, who's uh, profiting from, right, quite literally, the, the, this racism at the same time that he's experiencing American racism himself. Yes, absolutely. Um, Tessera was somebody that I discovered in doing my research. And I felt very important to include his story, although he wasn't somebody involved in importing Japanese green teas. Um, but he was intriguing, first of all, because he was a man who, a lot of ways, believed in the American dream and his idea that he could come to America, develop a, a company. He was had these goals to sell Ceylon-produced tea in the United States, uh, do direct imports along the lines of some of the things that I talked about. Um, and I found in, in newspapers uh, clear accounts of how he was subjected to to many accounts of just outright racism um, in so many times of his life. But he was also then using um, these or playing up these images of Japanese 
green teas or Chinese green teas as being dirty, dangerous, and fraudulent. Uh, fraudulent excuse me. Um, and so therefore, it would be better to purchase um, this India and Ceylon black teas, which was often uh, many advertisements were used, which were described that Americans should purchase this Indian Ceylon black teas because it is produced under white supervision. Um, and so therefore, it makes it a better product um, than the suspicious teas that are produced by um, Chinese and Japanese producers. Yeah, and this is what was interesting because, of course, you know, he's a, a native of, uh, was it Colombo, I guess? Yes. Uh, and so my my sense was, and I don't know if you if you can answer this, but he was experiencing a, a slightly different form of uh, American racism as somebody with uh, you know who wasn't sort of East Asian looking. Yes, um, I I haven't if in doing the book I didn't have a chance to research uh, more, um, particularly about people from South Asia uh, in the United States in this period that I, I imagine were. Uh, forced to endure these same kinds of, of racism. Um, but yes, he is a, a very, very interesting character, uh, individual um, because of how he is, is forced to overcome racism. Um, and also the fact that around this time, um, there are, for example, a tea board that is set up by the U.S. federal government um, that is to assure standards of tea. Um, and the men, it's only men that are chosen on this board uh, are white men who are the what we call the the the, the larger tea importing exporting firms. And Tessera, to my knowledge, is never given the opportunity to be on this tea board. Um, so he is constantly um, challenged to to bring some success to his company. Yeah. So, I, um, and thank you for elaborating on that. Cause I, as you point out, I mean, it's not, uh, precisely the core of your story, but it's also a very interesting part of the, um, the interwoven nature of all these different you know, threads that you're bringing together where you have Japan, you have China, you have the British empire, you have American racism, you have American consumers, you have white, you know, uh, white people, you have green tea, you have black tea. And so I think it's important to understand that the book really does uh, bring all these things together in, you know, what is in some ways, you know, a commodity history. Right. Um, but there's also this, uh, it's not all racism, uh, and so I want to look at some of the, 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 the less disturbing parts of the book as well. Um, and one of them is there's a section in the book which has this absolutely fantastic title, um, Ch Chinese style Japanese green tea for Americans. Uh, and I think if you could unpack that for us, it really gets to the, the core of what you're arguing in the book. Well, thank you for the question. And then also just to build on your previous comment, the larger goal that I hope can be a, a takeaway from the book is that thinking about national history as being inherently international. Um, and the title that it came to of Chinese style Japanese green tea for Americans um, was learning about from the 1860s, which I talked about earlier as the takeoff point for Japan's tea exports, is the fact that the Westerners like William Alt, who were setting up tea factories in Nagasaki, he was hiring Japanese to work in them. Neither of those groups had any idea 
about how to produce tea on an industrial scale for export. Therefore, they turned to the people with the know-how, and these were Chinese experts. So one of the many intriguing aspects of this research is finding out of seeing, uh, and, and I include a picture in the book, of a American export firm, and it's as late as around 1910, where they have an image of the skilled staff that is in the company are there by their clothing, by their hats, are indicated to be in this image of, of about 20 men, 90% being Chinese. Um, so the Chinese have this really, really important role of setting up how the tea what type of tea is going to be exported in these plants. They therefore do what they've been doing back in China and producing a type of tea that was fired um, in the term was called. It was uh, subjected to heat um, over an extended period, usually about 30 to 40 minutes to, to eliminate moisture from the tea. They did this because it would prevent the tea from being moldy when it was opened up um, after being transported across the Pacific um, to the United States. This, this was uh, the established way to refine it and ensure that it'll get to market. So this was the type of tea that was first produced for export in China and therefore then is produced in Japan. So the type of sencha as we think of it today um, that is being exported from Japan is really only starting in the first decade of the 20th century. Why? Because this is the first time you have real sort of mechanization in the factories in the Japanese port cities that allow then to have a tea that can be processed and maintain more of the original green color. Um, but before this point, there was then using the Chinese method. And actually some very interesting uh, discussions I found, you know, for example, by Japanese uh, officials in the 1890s and stuff that they were saying, we have, to, we have to move away from producing this, or to say exporting this Chinese style uh, of tea. We have to export our own tea, which is better. Uh, we have pride in, in our own tea in this style. So it's, it's uh, intriguing to see how Japan, in its first few decades of its export regime, is exporting mainly uh, what can be called here this Chinese-style Japanese green tea. Yeah, and, and you've actually touched on uh, one other thing, which I just wanted to uh, sort of you know, bookmark here for our, our reader, uh, readers and listeners, which is that there's some really interesting uh, you know, sort of technical discussion of how the teas uh, were made and the different grades of tea. And I found that, to, you know, as, as somebody who's interested in food, I found that to be quite uh, intriguing. Um, and I learned a lot from that as well. Uh, so you, one of the things that you mentioned early on uh, is that Japanese green tea uh, was really most, uh, I guess, popular and these American green tea ways developed um, in, in the burgeoning Midwest. Um, and it's also true, as you point out, that Japanese green tea held on after World War I longest in the Midwest, um, even as black tea was sort of pushing it out in other regions through the uh, efforts of uh, Tessera and the other Ceylon marketers that we've talked about. So you you mentioned uh, that you know part of the you, you mentioned some of the reasons that uh, green tea was popular in the Midwest. But 
can you speculate as to why it is that it was able to sort of hold on um, even as uh, black tea was on the rise in other regions of the U.S. after the 1920s? Uh, sure. Yes. And thank you for that question. Um, as I mentioned, just to build on, I think it's important to emphasize again about how that the Midwest was was holding on to what was the established American tea way of drinking green tea. So I think that that was hard to move away from, number one. But also the fact that the groups, I should say, the within the market, um, who is really marketing black tea, um, are these large firms such as Lipton that we, we know about uh, throughout the world today. Um, but that marketing has a bit slower time of developing in the Midwest. And the reasons for this, I think, first of all, is that people are still buying in the Midwest a tea from, for example, the delivery man. Um, and I focus on one tea company in the U.S., Jewel Tea Company, that up until the 1920s was delivering by wagons um, that would go door to door and be selling to the families uh, their staples, selling their brand of tea, and still selling a lot of Japanese green tea. They, of course, wanted to diversify. They could sell whatever they were trying to sell whatever they wanted to, so would sell black teas as well. But the fact that it is very hard, I think, to uh, quickly change the market in the Midwest is due to the fact that there's still the purchasing practices of so many Midwesterners, that they're still understandably um, using this way that they've been doing for decades of buying from this delivery person delivery man, uh, invariably was the case in this respect. So I think that those are two of the main reasons why the Midwest held out to be uh, green tea country longer than other parts of, of the country. Yeah. And, and I, one of the reasons I wanted to, uh, to ask about that is because I think that, you know, as a, uh, a commodity history and a trans a transnational history and a food history, you know, one of the, uh, interesting things beyond the sort of um, uh, international uh, contexts that we've talked about is that, that because it's a commodity history, there's also the, uh, in addition to the people, in addition to the capital, in addition to the product, there's also the uh, technologies of production, uh, which we just were talking about a little bit, and then there's the infrastructure. Um, and so this for me was also sort of a fascinating and uh, uh, revealing I think, um, uh, aspect of the history was thinking about the, uh, the speed of diffusion and how that relates to the sort of built environment, the material culture, the physical space, the infrastructure of uh, not just production, but also distribution and how that you know, plays out in the uh, consumer choices uh, or what appear to be consumer choices and you know, are, are actually quite constrained uh, that are being made. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the 1920s and, uh, you know, also there's the starting with that first turning point in the uh, 1860s, then the second turning point in the 1920s. And I guess the most obvious third turning point in your narrative uh, has to be World War II, um, you know, which has a tremendous impact on the American thirst for Japanese tea. Um, the export industry doesn't really recover for decades, as you point out in the book. Um, and when it does uh, green tea emerges, or I guess re-emerges, uh, as this healthy special drink 
rather than as a fixture of American life, which it had been uh, a century earlier. So I guess in a way it's combining the uh, marketing of sencha as healthy in the 1920s in Japan and the uh, sort of specialness of the drink, which is something a little bit different than what it was in either country before that. Um, and what accounts for that result, right, for the transformation in the American market um, and, and how was that different from the way that the uh, history of tea drinking and tea ways played out after 1945 in Japan? Uh, well, first of all, absolutely that the World War II um, ended the exports and the Japanese export trade re really never recovered and certainly was never achieved the same amounts of exports that it did, for example, uh, in those peak times in, in, during World War I. Um, and we have, though, in the 1930s, uh, many Japanese tea sellers that are working in the United States to try and sell more tea uh, based upon the idea that it's healthy, that it's good for Americans, um, and it never takes off. It's successful, that marketing campaign successful in Japan, but never successful in the United States. So I mentioned in the book that uh, if the men that were involved with this in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, if they'd been around in the 1980s, they'd be bemused by the fact that their whole campaign uh, would have achieved success in the 18 in sorry in the 1980s, starting off of where we see then a return of interest in Japanese green tea, green tea in general as a health product, um, and I think that this is also related to the fact in the 1980s that Japan becomes much more on Americans' radar uh, because of the growth of the Japanese economy and Japan's greater international presence overall. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting, and I, I think that you know reemergence of Japan and a kind of you know in, in a way it struck me that it's it's part of a, a, a particular kind of. Um, Japanese chic that comes with that, you know, that later on becomes, you know, soft power and coup to Japan and some of the other things that we talk about, but that there's a sort of not exactly precursor, but uh, that, that it falls into some of those same categories as a cultural product, you know, not just a food product in that sense. Um, and I found that a very interesting uh, sort of way to, to wrap up thinking about the book, um, which is what I'd like to start doing here. Uh, by first of all, thanking you for uh, taking the time to talk about the book uh, with us today. And also, uh, you know, asking you what you're up to now, now that you have your book out, uh, what is it that you're working on? What can we expect to see from you in the future? Uh, well, thank you for, first of all, about wrapping up the book. Um, and in those last chapter, one of the things that was really fun for me that I was able to come back, uh, well, I should say, talk a little bit about my adopted home state and adopted area of the American South. I, I live in North Carolina. I'm originally from uh, Washington State and the West Coast of the U.S. Um, but coming here to the South, the American South, one of the big cultures is sweet tea. Um, it's an icon of Southern food. And I was intrigued about how this iconic uh position developed of sweet tea and learning about that, for example, that there was, um, well, there is a lot of focus on tea production in South Carolina, um, going back to the 19th century and how that there's a many arguing that this is really the important way of tracing American tea ways that we can think of it as 
particularly a domestic uh, development that the imports from China, from, from Japan, from India, from Ceylon aren't as important. So I really wanted to challenge that viewpoint and to come back to my larger point about the book of where I wanted to emphasize about how national history is inherently international. Um, and I saw this story about sweet tea as being a way to think about that, to revisit it and tie up the American story. And then also, uh, as I think we mentioned, you know, about how tea becomes then in the United States being much more of a uh, health product as a way of tying up than that end of the story. Thank you also for asking then about my future research. Uh, one of the things that I'd like to do is to come back to a project that has some connections to the tea trade, but looking at the Pacific Ocean in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, particularly about, of course, Japan's place in it. And one of the things that's been intriguing to me was the accounts of Japanese castaways, who, because of the way the Pacific Ocean and the currents play out that so many Japanese were tragically sent as castaways by the ocean currents around different parts of the Pacific. And their accounts, therefore, form a very, very interesting source for us to look at the Pacific Ocean in the late in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Heretofore, many of the accounts are usually from Europeans or from Americans or others, uh, whether they be people like Captain Cook and the like. So I'm hoping to be able to develop some different ideas about how we can understand the Pacific um, through these accounts of Japanese castaways. Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, and I hope that uh, in the not too distant future, we'll be able to get you back on the podcast with a, a follow-up book uh, of this time taking on the entire Pacific uh, through the eyes of stowaways uh, and sorry, castaways, excuse me. Um, but that sounds wonderful. Uh, and I look forward to uh, hearing more about the project as it develops. Uh, so thank you again for uh, spending some time with us today and talking about your book. Thank you very much for, for hosting me. It was a real pleasure.